Hey friends, thanks for showing up for another episode of Disneyland for Designers. And if you are a Club 1313 member, you got this episode on Monday. And if you're in Club 1313, make sure you log into the Discord to get these episodes early. I wanted to give my members a little bonus because we're a little bit short on Disneyland news this week. I could barely make a real episode, much less a bonus episode. So I wanted to hand it out a couple of days earlier to all my friends over in Club1313.com. Because as you notice, our podcast has zero ads, zero sponsors, meaning all of my friends at club1313.com are the ones that make this podcast show up each and every week. And I wanted to thank you all with a little early bonus sneak peek of today's episode about the skeleton dance. Hey friends, Bricky here back again with another episode of Bricky Talks Disney. Kind of like that name. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. And let me tell you, it is an all time low as far as current news happening out at the Disneyland Resort. I mean, all time low. I cannot remember another week where so little happened, but we're on the horizon of so many big things, which is exactly why it's been so quiet out at the resort. So instead of trying to make mountain out of mohills, because literally all of last week's stories are still the biggest stories of this week, let's look back. Let's look back 93 years at a little project that sort of showed where Disney would always be at. Wholesome family entertainment, but never fearful of playing into the dark side. Today, it's the story of the skeleton dance. Before Disney had mastered the game of entertainment and IPs, intellectual properties, which recently I did a video sort of explaining how a fan's love of an IP, of a character, of a story, triggers them to spend money on merchandise, theme park tickets, movie tickets, and streaming services. Essentially, the IP is the beginning of the synergy of the Walt Disney Corporation. But a long time ago, before they had this figured out, back in 1929, they made a series of independent shorts that were just independent in their continuity. The characters in one show may not be in the next episode because back then it was just literally a win to make animation. The idea of how does this character and this story transfer over into next week's episode How does this motivate somebody to spend more money with us? None of that had been thought of because it was literally just about the art of animation. Whoa, we survived to make one. Can we make another? And they did. They would end up making 75 musical short films produced by Walt Disney Productions from 1929 to 1939 under the name Silly Symphony. And inside this body of work is when we would see lovable characters like Donald Duck, make their first appearance and other characters would make their appearances but not be named like Pluto and I believe Goofy was in there too but don't hold me to that one because before there was any concern about characters and I think one of the reasons why the Silly Symphonies were independent stories is because each project was probably a challenge all of its own I remember when I first got into doing YouTube and podcasting just every time you made an episode it felt like you were trying to send a man to the moon There was no idea or planning, uh, how does this episode or this video feed into the next one? But the more you do things, the more your muscle memory starts to kick in, 
And also, the more that you spend a lot of time on something, the more the need for finances come in. How can we make today's cartoon not only evergreen, so people will want to watch this short for a long period of time, but how can today's struggle create a financial windfall for future projects to come? Eventually, that is where the mindset of the corporation would be, but that's a 102 level of thinking, right? That's being a senior in high school. We're talking about just being a freshman. It's like, how do I just get through the day without getting stuffed into a locker? That's what Silly Symphony was. A bunch of animators not wanting to get stuffed into a locker. And working with that metaphor, I don't think that there were non-animation bullies coming through and be like, hey, you nerds, I'm going to take you and your pencils and shove you in this locker. But I think the idea was if we can keep creating and keep innovating, then we can keep winning to make more of these. This is where the intervention of Technicolor and multiple motion picture cameras came into play. Now, Technicolor, you have probably seen on lots of old-timey packaging and you're just like, yeah, it's in Technicolor. Because to many of us, probably all of us, color entertainment has always been a part of our lives. But I'll break it down in a very, very basic way on how it worked. Essentially, they would run multiple film strips at once. One film strip would be only black and white, and it would be in a negative because of the way that light projects through it. But that one film strip would only be capturing everything that would be in the black to white tones. So essentially, imagine a black and white photograph of everything around you. But then at the exact same time, a second film was running that would capture everything in the red prism or red tones. And then another strip would be running that was capturing everything that was green. So when you look at old footage, the reason why it looks so muted and washed out, it's not because it's old and faded. It's not because that was the color palette of the time. It's because literally the red and green channel is trying to mimic as much color as possible while also having black and white laid over top of it. Now, white is really a misnomer. Whenever you get into printing, you realize White isn't a color of ink and printing. White is the color of your stock. So therefore, the black channel is pretty much all shapes of black, but the absence of black, our eyes perceive as light. I know that I'm getting very, very into the weeds here, and this is in audio format, not a video format. So I have no tools to show you what I'm talking about. But let me tell you, the idea of Technicolor was this. We can animate on one layer and we can color in in sub layers. And then the more sub layers that were introduced because Technicolor would grow over the years, the colors could get more saturated, giving the artist a bigger prism of colors to choose from that would create the world that they were animating in to look way more realistic. And speaking of realism, the multiplane camera is the real winner of Walt Disney inception of illustration and animation, why it looked so different than anything else. And I'll try to explain this to you verbally as well, which is no easy feat. There are some things that we as artists can illustrate, such as a character and the environment that they're living in. But where we have a hard time illustrating things by hand, I mean, this is pre-computer, pre-Photoshop, pre-Adobe. Adobe then was a structure, not a company that I have to give a lot of money to every month. Anyways, the idea is this. I can illustrate a character and I can illustrate the environment that they are in. However, by hand, it is nearly impossible to illustrate a range of focus. Therefore, as the character comes near you, the background goes out of focus or moves independently of the character in front of you. 
With the multi-plane camera, it gave the illustrators the idea of, all right, my characters exist on plane B. That would be the middle of the plane. Think of this as a sandwich. Where the character's at, that's your meat. But then on the top bun layer, or the A layer, we have the ability to make a bush or a fence or a different object blend in front of them. By doing the A layer, we have now taken our eyes and pushed the character back into the B layer, which makes it feel more real. And then the C layer, that's the bottom of the bun. And as you know, in nature, bread is nature's shovel to get good things into our mouth. So with the bottom layer or the C layer, you could then move the background image or say blur out a image back on the horizon. So as the character is moving towards you and the background is slowly blurring out, that gives us the ability to go, oh, they're traveling a distance. All of these gimmicks are mimicking what we have been taught with our eyesight our entire life. That's why when you put a shadow on something, it immediately makes it feel like it is above the item beneath it. Although they are on the exact same plane if it's an illustration or photograph. So now, if you think about it, we have layer A, B, and C. We have three different illustrations. The fence, the character, the building behind the character. And if we move these cameras, say that layer A goes to the left as layer C goes to the right, and then the character moves at a different speed diagonally, we have just animated the foreground character and background, which is exactly how we interpret the world as we walk through it. The idea of not only animating the illustrations, but animating the camera movement takes it all to a whole other level of realism and saves an incredible amount of time because the cameras are doing things that as illustrators that just aren't possible by hand. So when you think about the amazing run that Silly Symphony went on from 1929 to 1939, making 75 short films, each one of those films was a win in itself. Each one of those was another victory on perfecting the idea of the technology of the time, as well as matching that with storytelling. So each one of these was an individual story because each one of these was an individual win. The idea of continuous characters, continuous world building, and continuous cash flow would come years and years ahead. And because all big projects have to start somewhere, and often where we start is way different than where we end up, it would all start 93 years ago this month, on August 22nd of 1929, when a 5 minute and 31 second short, The Skeleton Dance, would premiere. The first 15 seconds alone would just be the credits. And hey, that's a smart move to fill up some of the time that you want to get into. But right out of the gate, the very first shot after we go past the handwritten title card are two big eyes that come out of blackness. Then those two big eyes, the camera zooms back, letting us know that those are the eyes of an owl sitting on a tree with a full moon behind them. Just that opening shot is such a smart way to go from black screen to two eyes, which is something that humans always have a hard time dealing with. Looking into an eye is looking into a soul. And then the camera pulls back to bring us into the scene. Already a masterful composition to take us mentally why is this thing staring at me? And then when the camera pulls back, 
That is the transformation of going from sitting in your seat to the theater to feeling like you are inside of the story. That scene would stay there for about another 25 seconds, doing a lot of repetitive animations, but showing another level of creativity of using Nightfall as a way to make things work inside of our budget. Most items in this opening shot are just silhouettes. If it's just a silhouette, that saves an enormous amount of time on shading, coloring inside of grayscale, and also sets up a more graphic tone of this is a nighttime scene and gets us in the mindset of something scary is possibly going to happen. As the camera then opens up to our first grayscale shot, we still see, as I talked about before, something that exists on the A level. We are looking around a knotted and bended tree, and over in the top right, we see a spider web in the A level. The A level is essentially framing out everything that we're going to peer around and look into. This makes your brain process. I'm not looking at the A level. I'm looking at what's on the B level, which is an old church, a graveyard. And then behind it in the C level is a silhouette of different various ugly dead looking trees brush that goes off into the moon. Looking around something makes your brain process. What am I really looking at? A background pushes your eye back into the foreground that you should be looking at or the B level, the burger on the bun, if you will. Masterfully, we go from that drop-in composition into this composition, which is a composition that Disney uses today on nearly all of their conceptual artwork and animated posters inside of the park. The three levels of storytelling, as I've nicknamed it, it is not a trend, it is a tool for perfect visual storytelling. Which is weird, because I'm telling you the story through audio, but we'll get there. Essentially, we hang on this exact same shot for about 20 seconds, animating items all around it. All of the items that are animated are nearly full black with a little bit of white in them, meaning that this gray scale illustration at the time isn't something that would have been easy to animate, but putting it in there adds light and depth and realism. But then illustrating behind it and on top of it, these silhouette solid black images, mostly black with just a couple of eyes, gives us the ability to add motion in a space that is too complicated to update frame by frame. Even though I'm going to guess this piece probably didn't have any multi-camera illustration done on top of it, we are already illustrating in multiple levels. So the next step would be to figure out how can we already move what we're doing in different directions to create more energy on screen, more realism? As the animation moves on, we start to see that same curved tree come back into frame as our layer A, our look around point. But then we come to two black cats sitting on top of headstones. Now the headstones are in that middle layer but they are fully grayscale. So that's all gonna stay very, very still because it is a still illustration. However, the two black cats illustrated on top of the headstones, those are the exact same illustration flipped around and mirrored, at least for about five seconds until they start to take on their individual traits. That is a huge time saver to mirror two characters on screen. I'm not gonna talk you through the entire thing. I just wanted to go through the first minute and a half and just let you know how something like this was done in a way where it's like, okay, we really don't know what we're doing. We don't have a ton of money. We don't know if there's even an audience for this. How can we design best inside of our restraints? And this is the most important part. This is why I love Disneyland. 
How do we make our restraints our strong points? What I love about Disneyland is accidentally a city sprouted up all around it. Therefore, the thing that makes Disneyland kind of suffer from not being able to just take complete control of all the land around it is that a city exists around it. But that obstacle makes the park stronger because they have worked on making amazing sight lines so that you can never see out of Disneyland. Walt Disney World is beautiful, and the Magic Kingdom out there is a fantastic park, but it doesn't have the same restraints as Disneyland does. Therefore, it can get a little lazy, a little long in the tooth on some of its sight lines, and not really feel the consequences of a city pushing on its outer borders. The Skeleton Dance continually takes everything that would have hurt it and makes it something that makes it stronger. This is the most important thing that a creative can think of, What are my restraints? How do I turn those into my strengths? Learning how to design with inside of your constraints will always make you a much better designer. Just like when they realized if we design one skeleton and make that skeleton dance, then we can repeat it three more times and have a whole chorus line of dancing skeletons, which is exactly what ends up happening. If you look over this five and a half minutes, You can see so many efficiencies, so many corners that were cut to make this first short possible. But I would tell you that none of them make it weaker. They actually make it stronger because the idea of seeing the skeletons dance in unison is absolutely adorable. Frightening? Not so much. But adorable? 100%. And this would create another template for Disney Pictures is always knowing that a hero is important but a hero is only defined as long as we have a villain. And as we've seen the parks embrace the villain's night out of the park or the villain's lounge on top of the contemporary hotel out at the Magic Kingdom in Walt Disney World, we have seen that they understand that we love these villains. They're normally drawn way cooler, have better character voices, just have an overall more enticing design. I mean, I love Fantasmic, and I love seeing Mickey Mouse show that he's got some imagination, but I'm not going to lie to you. The part that I love the most is when Disneyland goes full on metal, sets the Rivers of America on fire, and that big dinosaur... Is that a dinosaur? A dragon's not a dinosaur, you idiot. That big dragon comes out of nowhere that it's being constructed while you're standing there. Because what do they do with Fantasmic? exactly what I've been talking about. There are three levels of storytelling. In this one, it gets a little bit trickier. Level number one is technically the waterway. That is where a lot is happening. The waterway is going back and forth. Then on level number three is the island itself. But level number one is the lights and mist that are in between you and level two. Essentially, the way that Phantasmic works is while you are watching one level of the story, whether that be C or B, the other level is being set up and prepped for you. So it goes something on the water, something on the island. Smoke, lights, mist, something on the water, something on the island. Bouncing back and forth. It is essentially one of these cartoons that is something that we look down on, like literally look north to south down on. The Fantasmic is the same idea, but looking across from east to west. 
So not only is the skeleton dance the beginning of Silly Symphony, not only is it the beginning of Disney taking the technology of the time, pushing it as far as they can, and hiding all of the restraints within the project, but it's also the beginning of saying, we're not going to shy away from bad images, demonic images, satanic images, if you will. I mean, think about it. At the time of this premiering, a film about a black cat, black crow, or or blackbird, if you will, a black owl, the skeletons, the dancing, the bones, like this is pretty racy for the time because what did Walt also know? Our emotions are something that guide us. So many of the Disney stories were designed to humble us, to make us cry, to make us hurt. Because if you have an experience with something that is emotional, it is something that you will remember. So when we all cry about the beginning of Bambi or Dumbo's Tears, or if a 1929 audience was like, whoa, what is this? Skeletons? A graveyard? An old church? What am I going into? That that scares us, that that makes us cry, that that invokes our emotions is that that we remember. So I'm going to say that there's no accident that 93 years ago in August of 1922 that they decided to use a lot of this more terrifying or darker imagery as their subject matter because it was shocking. I don't know if this is going to shock you, but uh, Walt Disney was kind of the master of clickbait and outrage media. The man really did know how to get the audience emotions involved in whatever story that he was telling. And I know it wasn't Walt sitting at the draftsman table drawing every frame and he wasn't the one that was writing all these stories, but he was the curator. He was the curator of the collection and everything had to kind of get passed through Walt's eyes. And I believe the thing that Walt was always looking for, great idea, great concept, but how does this invoke an emotion from the customer, from the viewer? Because if we can make them feel things, we can make them remember things. And the thing that we want them to remember is Disney is the company that entertains them and we need them to come back to our next project, our next endeavor. 93 years ago, Halloween wasn't nearly what it is today, 93 years later. Halloween has become such a big part of our culture because there's something about it that we just enjoy. I think maybe it's the pageantry of all the decorations. For some, it's being able to dress up in a costume and maybe be a little bit more of the type of person they would like to be, whether that's more heroic, more scary, more removed from everybody else, or in some people's cases, a sexier version of themselves. But 1922, Halloween wouldn't be what it is today. Today, Halloween is something that lasts several months. In fact, by the time Halloween finally shows up, most people are already sick of Halloween. This year, the Disneyland Resort will start kicking off its Halloween celebration on September 2nd. Talk about two holidays colliding. This will be the first year that I know of where Halloween will officially be going as Labor Day weekend is here. Labor Day weekend in the States used to be the end of summer. Now it has officially gotten booted off of that pedestal and it's become the start of the Halloween, the fall season. And now that I'm thinking about it, the film came out in 1929, but was dropped on August 22. And today is 2022. So in case I've gotten anything wrong, I do understand that the film came out in 29 and it was dropped on the 22nd, but this is the year 2022. 
I just want to put that disclaimer here because I do not want to have to go back and edit anything that I've maybe already said in the wrong way. And back in 1929, the film got rave reviews from Variety and Film Daily, mostly talking about, and this is an important thing to take away from it. Often they say, you should think about how do you want people to review your content and then make the content that will invoke those emotions to those reviews. And so if you look at the couple of reviews that I was able to find of the skeleton dance, people talk about how crazy it is that they can see the skeletons playing music with their own bones and that essentially all of this dark imagery has become warm and inviting. And if there's one thing I know about people, and I know this from being a adult male who's been sleeved in tattoos now for the better part of two and a half decades, you'll meet a lot of people in this world that have zero tattoos. In fact, sometimes on Halloween, their idea of dressing up is to put on a shirt that makes them look like me on a Tuesday with like, oh, check it out, I'm sleeved in tattoos. But what I have learned from being somebody that looks like, I don't know, somebody that used to be perceived as somebody closer to the bad side of the law, even though tattoos now are just literally nothingness. But I do remember many moments in my life being someplace upscale around people of power, influence, and money. And you would think that they would be sort of like, ugh, who's this low life? And that has happened. But there's also this attraction of like, I want to meet that guy because that guy seems like he's up to something interesting or that guy seems as if he's kind of in charge or doing his own thing. And that's kind of changed a little bit over time, but it still does happen. If something is perceived as sort of dark or scary or menacing and then you get invited to the inside of it there's a feeling of i conquered this or if this looks cool to me and i'm with this person then then i must be cool i know this is incredibly cringy to say out loud but it's just something that my wife and i both sleeved in tattoos have realized before when we are at some place gnarly like say terranea out in palos verdes where we're around a class of people that are way beyond us in their earning power and overall lifestyle, but yet we become the people that people are like, oh, I want to know more about them. So the way that I see the skeleton dances when I read these reviews, something that was dark and menacing became warm and inviting. That is a trick. Set people up to make them think, oh, this thing is going to be scary or intimidating. And then when it walks out and you had a how, as they said, nice pun, old timey publisher, you feel like you've made it to the inside of the story. This is a practice that I see Disney still replicate today. Little kids watch movies. The hero scares them. It challenges them. It pushes them a little bit further to become brave. But once they conquer that villain, they then feel more self-secure. They feel more like they can see Ursula, R.I.P., and conquer that villain. And now it no longer scares them. They remember being frightened, but then overcoming that fear. And I think one of the reasons why the villains are so loved in the park is all of us have that memory of being young and being scared. But then the next thing that we do to our fear is we overcome it. And that journey of overcoming that that scares us makes us stronger. And it's a small badge of honor that we hang on our heart. I think that is part of what the use of villains has done so well for the Disney Corporation and how they have created fans 
over decades and decades of villains and villains. And to sort of back up this point, because it's hard to look at the skeleton dance and see, well, this was never scary. But the film was banned in Denmark. So there were places on the map where they're like, no, 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 no. We're, we're not showing skeletons dancing in a graveyard using their own human bones as instruments. I mean, it was a step too far for some folks who I would like to call prudes. But Denmark saying, uh-uh, this isn't happening in their native language of no bueno, it does go to show that Walt Disney was a provocateur and he knew how to push the limits on things. Because when you push the limits on things and people come in and they survive it or they feel accepted by it, it makes people feel as if they have gone to the limits. Everybody wants to see themselves as edgy. Everybody wants to see themselves as somebody who gets something that other people don't. Essentially, kind of scaring your audience and then bringing them back in. The process of bringing them back in makes them feel like they belong. It makes them feel like Disney is a home for them. As we sit on the edge of literally waiting for Halloween to begin, because that will be the next big news that breaks in the world of Disney news, it will be Halloween, then D23 announcements, Oogie Boogie is smashed right inside of there. Whoever has the energy and stamina to do Oogie Boogie after a day of D23, you, friend, are my hero because that sounds like the most exhausting Disney day that I can ever imagine. And I am somebody who has rode the train for 16 and a half hours and the Disneyland tram for 17.75 hours. So I know a grueling long Disney day and that one is a step too far for me. But on the edge of looking at Halloween being the next thing on the horizon and some of our favorites going down then coming back up reimagined under the cloak of darkness that is Halloween. I thought it would be fun to look back at the skeleton dance, to look back in 1929 and look back at something that started so many different trends of both learning how to make your strengths your weaknesses, but also how to use a subject matter that scares people but draws them back in. Disney has had a masterful use of heroes. In fact, we are supposed to identify with the heroes in the story. They are supposed to be us. But somehow, the heroes kind of come off as jerks sometimes. They don't always, you know, identify with us. And so even though we are supposed to be the hero, we're supposed to be the quest for greatness and become a better person, it is the villains that we can't stop loving. And even though they're designed to terrify us and scare us, there's something about them that is so adorable, so loving, so menacing, and so close to our heart. And that's why the next big thing on the horizon is the beginning of the two-month celebration where we celebrate the villains of the park, the transformation of the happiest place on earth to, quote-unquote, the happiest, scariest place on earth. Even though it may not be terrifying and menacing, there is something fun about ripping around DCA with a park-wide soundtrack celebrating so many villains and so many of our favorite stories. The Skeleton Dance shows that there was always a template for how to move the audience in the direction that Disney wanted them to and to make that connection. And that connection now stands decades later, and that connection has become tradition. Because if we all can rewind to 2020, one of the hardest things about the park being closed was the absence of our traditions, the absence of 
Halloween at the Disney Park, seeing scary Mickey, the pumpkin Mickey, in Town Square, or the Halloween fireworks show, or Cars Land turning into the scary version of it. Oh, Halloween, I believe they call it. Or my favorite transformation, Villains Grove, where a part of the park designed for young kids to go around and show their bravery and courage by climbing up a rock or going on a rappel turns into Villains Grove, which is literally like dying and going to Disney heaven. Walk into the light, Brickley. Walk into the light. So the return of normalcy is the return of tradition. And I do love that recently the company is still having run-ins with people that don't quite understand where the company is at yet. There are still Denmarks. There are still people that say uh, Buzz Lightyear or Lightyear has a same-sex kiss in it. We're going to put a sign up. We're going we're gonna to let people know there's something in here that they're not ready for. And as some people say, oh, the company's changing. It's headed in a different direction. It's still headed in the same direction it's always been in. It's always been provocative. It's always pushed the boundaries. It's always done this to bring in more people and to bring in a closer relationship. Just the last time that it was provocative, you were young, you weren't spending money, and that provocative moment maybe offended somebody older in your family or in your friend group. But that's the thing about the Disney Corporation and how you make it 100 years. You constantly have to adapt. You constantly have to change the rules you constantly have to remind yourself that every 10 years, a new generation of consumers, of fans, of your community are being hatched. And you have to find a way to make sure that they feel like the Disney of their youth is the one that belongs to their youth. It's funny. I could literally go on and on forever about how this five and a half minutes from 1929 shows so much of the blueprint to where we are today and how we're all just sitting back waiting for Halloween to start. When I look back at the skeleton dance, my favorite memory of this short film is there was a time when Mickey's not so scary Halloween happened inside of Disneyland. And as part of that, if you were an annual pass holder, only annual pass holders could go inside of Mr. Lincoln's theater and inside of Mr. Lincoln's theater, They were showing a lot of these old Silly Symphony shorts, but all ones that had something to do with Halloween. And I remember sitting in there with my wife next to me and a bucket of popcorn between us watching the skeleton dance. And I remember thinking how magical it was to watch that in that setting while there was a Halloween party going on outside of the theater. And I remember also thinking, wow, it is fascinating how old this is how relevant this is, and how there is so much in here that shows exactly where the company would end up going. Not only in its art of storytelling, but in its art of using technology to push that storytelling as far as it can. Friends, I hope you enjoyed this smaller and shorter episode this week. I just didn't want to beat up all the headlines, and I also don't want to get into that sensationalism where I'm making my own headlines. I don't believe in that. But I do like sitting back once a week and talking about Disney with you. And when I kind of looked around to say, okay, there's not a big thing to talk about this week. I don't want to keep beating up the same topics of Tomorrowland and Magic Bands. So I looked over in the timeline of the company and I said, wow, the Skeleton Dance hits its anniversary this month. And I thought about, hmm, they probably released that in August, maybe to get a little play off of Halloween. I don't really know what the business was of how you could market it and sell tickets for a five-minute feature. 
But uh, that's a different topic for a different time. But I thought this would be a fun way to look back at not only this story and the technology of how they use this story, but how this little short film shows so much about where Disney was heading and how much they have actually accomplished over decades and decades of leaning into villains, trying to scare us, but only making us feel closer along the way. Friends, I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. And I also want to point out that I've been calling you friends for quite a long time. And now Disney Parks is finally catching up with Old Man Bricky by using the term friends. So now cast members will not say sir or ma'am. They will just literally call everyone friend. Because when you call everybody a friend, you're saying to them, regardless of how you identify, I don't care because I see you as a friend. And that's something I've been doing for a long, long time on the podcast, because literally when I sit in the studio by myself, I imagine you sitting across from me and I imagine you being my friend. And (laughs) if you want to be a friend that supports my content, head over to club1313.com. And uh, yeah, that was a really shameless place to put in the plug, but where else am I going to put it? And uh, yeah, this is a business. So I got to remember to do those things, even though it always feels gross and I hate it. Friends, thank you so much for sitting next to me and having this conversation about Disney. I'll see you back here next week and hopefully we'll have some big news to get into. But if not, let me know. Do you enjoy looking back at the past and figuring out how we can apply those lessons to where the company's at today and all the distance that they've traveled between those two points on this bizarre timeline that we call life? Let me know because I have no problem looking backwards on the weeks when there's not a lot to talk about as we're all starting to look forward. Thank you so much for listening. Until the next time I see you, keep doing that skeleton dance. Mm -hmm.